You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Pennsylvania Woodsman, powered by Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. This show is driven to provide relatable hunting and outdoor content in the Keystone State and surrounding Northeast. On this show, you'll hear an array of perspectives from biologists and industry professionals to average Joes with a lifetime of knowledge. All centered around values aiming to be better outdoorsmen and women, both in the field as well as home and daily life. No clicks, no self-interest, just delight in the pursuit of creation. And now, your host, the pride of Pennsylvania, the man who shoots straight and won't steer you wrong, Johnny Appleseed himself, Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you guys had a wonderful Christmas. Uh, We are just in shock that uh, this is the last week of the year. And uh, I could tell you a couple things that I've noticed here recently. Number one, I need to start, uh, get back into a rhythm of exercising and eating a little bit better because definitely the holidays and the last month of hunting season and everything else, man, my eating habits have been so poor and I can tell you my pants don't fit quite as well as they did earlier in the year. And, uh, I just don't, I just don't feel right, but, uh, that's okay. We go, I go through this every year. Um, but, uh, we'll just, uh, just blame it on the time of the year, probably a need for a change in, uh, in some of my habits, but I can't lie. I just like food. Food is good, (laughs) but I had a wonderful Christmas. Um, you know, it was really neat. I would say this is the first Christmas I've had in my family where, you know, my, my oldest son now he's, he's three. And like, this was the first time that he was fairly aware, you know, where, you know, Santa came and I, I like this for Christmas and, you know, that, that routine. So seeing him open gifts, you know, really excited, you know, seeing some gifts that he, that he asked Santa for and he gets them and, you know, it was, it was pretty neat. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I, I enjoyed it a lot. And I had some, uh, some friends of mine, I, I sent pictures of the kids and they all said, I miss that. So I'm going to do my best to, to savor it while it lasts with, uh, with my little young kids. And I, I can't lie though. They're a handful. Uh, they, they definitely a full day of Christmas festivities definitely is, uh, a high stimulus for them, but it was good. Um, let's see what else happened. I, uh, Oh, I know what I got. I got a black powder horn, like a decorative black powder horn for Christmas. And it was, it's really neat looking. There's two, you know, beautiful engraved buck on this, on this horn, fully functional horn. Um, but it's one of those where it's like, it's so nice. I don't know if I really want to take it out muzzleloader hunting or not, because there's a part of me that doesn't want to ruin it. And I just like to use it for decoration, but it's fully functional. So who knows, maybe this year I'll, I'll use a powder horn. I, I typically make speed loads, but I don't know. 
pretty uh, pretty neat gift. I was pretty excited about that. But uh, yeah, I just uh, <clears throat> I, I enjoy Christmas, but it's hard to believe that it's over. And going into a new year, what's uh, what's on my mind for a new year? I don't know. Um, I was uh, the other day. I don't know what made me do it, but I was thinking about like just goals and things I want to do from a hunting perspective and a lot of it has to do with um you know I'd like to shoot you know or or be able to hunt some other species and you know go some other places um some of it is I'd like to harvest some game with some different weapons um I've I've really wanted to shoot some more game with my muzzleloader um just just stuff like that um I, I'm, I'm still on my bear hunting kick I want to do some more bear hunting and I was doing all that and I was thinking uh when I looked at the list when I was done writing it up I was like well first of all I can't do all this in a short amount of time because this is too big and uh I also know I'm going to have a hard time doing certain things just with the, the phase of life I'm in. But the, the the big thing I noticed, and I was I was like, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, me 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 in this, and I thought, how can I, um, how can I incorporate friends, family, other people into this hunting uh, better than I have it in my head? So uh, you know, I, I'll I'll try to do some some things this year. I'm not I'm not quite sure what goals I'm going to have set forth exactly this year from a hunting perspective. But I know whatever I decide I want to try to do this coming season, I definitely want to incorporate um, people, family, friends a little bit better than I have. Um, I know I want to uh, improve the the hunting at uh, my place here a little bit. I have a very small parcel that I can hunt. And uh, I have the ability to do a little bit of manipulation, but not a lot. But I want to try to maximize every square inch of that that I can. And that's going to involve some some cuttings, some planting, some spraying, um, and just directing traffic, really. I uh, really want to just try to increase the amount of time that they do spend when they come through this this parcel. You know, I don't want it to be something they walk from the beginning to the end and it takes them 30 seconds. Hopefully it takes them a couple minutes. Maybe they even lay down a little bit longer and stage up there and just make it a little bit more conducive for me to bow hunt. Uh, I pulled some cameras that I had at my place. That I had a had a camera on a, on a trail that I just wanted to soak and I just wanted to let it go all year and I pulled it the other day. And one of the buck that I would have shot... Um, like the first day I was out, it was like the first or second day I hunted at my house in the morning, I had a buck come through. I never, I've never seen him before. And I, at that point I didn't have a picture of him. He, uh, he stepped out and he was too far on the neighboring property that I couldn't shoot him. But I got a good look at him, and no, I, I decided I would have shot him. I actually saw that deer twice. I saw him that morning. I hunted, and I saw him the next day in a cut cornfield not far from my house. 
and uh, it was a good looking buck. And then shortly after, that's when I killed my buck, and uh, you know th- that was said and done. But I I had seen that buck um, behind the house with doe after I killed my buck. He's, he was a real good deer. Not sure if he made it through. Um, and there was one other buck that I, I tell you what, I didn't get a great set of pictures of him, but he cruised through during bear season. But when he cruised through and I looked at him, I thought that is a very, very good possibility. That is the buck that I thought I would be hunting this season at my place. And uh, I only got one set of pictures. I'm not even sure it's him. It could have been a different buck. But there was there was one deer in particular that I, I knew had made it through from last hunting season. And I got one set of pictures. And it could be him, could be a different one, I don't know. But I was just thinking, you know, I'd really like to just try to make it that if the deer are going to go through this area, there's, there's a good chance they're going to go through here. And I've done things for that, but I, I don't, I, I, I really believe I'm at like 20% of what I could be. So... Definitely in my mind, lots of work going there, and uh, yeah, we'll just uh, roll with it from here. I'm hoping to, of course, do some flintlock hunting. I'll do some at New Year's. Maybe we'll get together for one last group hurrah at camp, but uh, yeah, regardless, looking forward to to New Year. This week's episode, I, uh, I wanted to do, I haven't done a lot of trapping episodes, and I wanted to do one with um, something that we don't typically talk about. You know, a lot of time I feel like when you do talk about trapping, and it's been the case on on our show in the in the first place, is you, a lot of time you're talking fox and coyote and predator removal. You know, that stuff where it's trapping and it's great, but it, it relates a lot to oh, deer hunting and turkeys, and, you know, we're removing these predators that impact the the game we hunt. And, like I said, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the the trapping episode we had this fall, if you listened, you know, we, we were talking about the fact that coyotes are probably, like, the the top end as far as the difficulty level when it comes to trapping. And, you know... That, that's all really cool, but one thing that I feel is uh, kind of a specialty you don't hear a lot about, but is uh, is intriguing, is, is water trapping. You know, there's a lot less people trapping uh, mink and muskrat now than there ever was, and what I thought was uh, really interesting and why I wanted to have this guest on is he has a lot of knowledge about it, is I, I want to talk a little bit more about beaver and otter trapping, and one thing that I so I've never beaver trapped, I've never otter trapped, I've never done any sort of trapping. I am clueless when it comes to uh, a lot about that. And I thought there was a lot of similarity in trapping for those two species. And this week I had Tom Keller. Now Tom Keller is the state fur bearer biologist. Fantastic guy. Wealth of knowledge, a lot of experience, and an all-around good guy, well-spoken. And the first thing I picked up on in our conversation is there is so many differences between trapping otters and beavers that I had no idea. And we, we talk a lot about trapping in general in the beginning half of our conversation. We, we 
discuss um, rules regulation type things and uh, just some general trapping information. But then we get into beaver and otter. We talk a little bit about the home range. We talk about food sources. We talk about scouting and then why and how we choose certain trapping sets and locations. And uh, Tom goes into into great depth. And like I said, I, I don't think this is an episode where you're going to hear this and you're going to say, yep, that's all I needed. I'm ready to go get my uh, get my traps and go beaver trapping, go river out of traffic there's a lot of stuff we could have covered and talked about and this podcast could have been about 10 hours long but uh what it does do is it gives you a really good snapshot uh snap yeah snapchat a snapshot of what to uh what to have in your mind and idea and it it um it, it really just taught me a lot and you know if there's anything i've learned from trapping a lot of really really good hunters were or still are trappers and trapping has really made a positive impact on their hunting just because their attention to detail so we're going to rock and roll with this episode with tom before we do shout out to our partners and radix hunting um the tree stands trail cameras trail camera accessories that game in my opinion you know there's there's definitely good companies out there but radix is a company i enjoy working with because they're 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 quality quality service integrity i really enjoy their cameras guys they've got great image quality great trigger response the the scout tech app and the m cell camera really really hard to beat i mean as far as the ease of use and the setup can't complain about it i really really enjoy using these radix cameras check them out radixhunting.com and also huntworth this is the season for colder weather hopefully it looks like we're supposed to get some cold weather here in january but your heat boost clothing i have uh, a heat boost hoodie heat boost jacket and pants and I plan to rock and roll that a little bit here in the late season. But what I have used with Heat Boost, it has really, really impressed me. I cut down on the bulk, cut down on the layers, and it cuts down on the wind chill getting down to my bone. It really, really does keep me warm like nothing else I've ever worn hunting before. I'm using the disruption pattern, the digital camouflage. And all the places that I've used that uh, this season in Pennsylvania, whether that was in a deer stand um, that's in, you know, a less rural area to big woods and everywhere in between, it's really, really done a good job of keeping me hidden. And it looks cool. So I can't say enough good things about that. Check it out. Huntworth Gear. There's still time if you got to get a, a, a late present or something like that. Check it out. And with that, let's get to this episode. And joining us back, I'm going to welcome back Tom Keller to the show. Uh, Tom, how have you been? Good, man. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm excited to be with you this evening and talk about doing some trapping and anything that you guys are interested in learning about trapping. I'm happy to, to talk with you more. Yeah, so Tom, you're the you're the fur bear biologist for the state, and the last time we had you on the show, we were talking all about uh, the Martin, 
Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I know we could probably spend an entire hour or longer going back into that whole topic because I know it's, you know, the top of uh, top of your list of or towards the top of your list now. But I wouldn't mind. Can, can you uh, recap a little bit and kind of update us on what's happening with that project? Absolutely. So, been working on this project. So it's a really a long term evaluation process in 2021. Uh, into 22, we developed a feasibility assessment to look at, like, can we reintroduce Martin? Is it possible? And then from 22 to 23, we just developed a reintroduction and management plan. So a long-term 10-year plan to look at exactly where they would go, where we would get them from, how we would go about doing that. Um, and then uh, what we're working on now, we just finished the public review and comment period for that plan. So the public had 60 days to kind of read it, weigh in on it, let us know how they felt about it. Um, and then really we're moving towards a final decision here, hopefully in January at our January meeting. And that'll be coming up January 26th, 27th. Um, I'll be presenting some of the uh, information on the public comments and, and kind of wrap up of any changes we made to the plan based on those. And then uh, the board will uh, be asked to make a decision here on the 27th at their, their public meeting. And then we'll see where it goes from there. That It could end and that could be the end, but uh, it also could get approved. And if it does get approved, then we'll begin uh, the reintroduction process from there. Extremely fascinating. I know when we talked last time, it was eye-opening the amount of misunderstandings that mm. um, you know people like myself and a lot of listeners probably had about introducing the Martin, introducing a quote-unquote another predator into the mix, and that's uh, extremely fascinating. So I'm kind of curious, was a lot of the public response the same things that we talked about when we first brought this up, or was there, uh, was there anything else that was new and interesting, or was, was it an overwhelming majority of the same old length story of concerns from, you know, turkeys to just what's this going to do to the landscape to my, you know, my chickens in the backyard and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It was really interesting. So we had over 998 comments come in, which is really more than any other management plan we've ever really put out there. And what we saw was about 80% of those comments were in support of the plan. A lot of that justification uh, people wanted to see kind of a native brought back to Pennsylvania. They wanted to see ecological restoration. Um, and then they wanted it for that recreational opportunity, both consumptive and non-consumptive. Um, but then what we saw with the 20% that opposed was a lot of kind of what you mentioned. People really concerned about turkeys, about grouse, uh, about domestic livestock. And so that was important to make sure that we had that addressed in the plan, which we did. Um, but there may be some ways in the plan there that we need to kind of bolster or just make it more apparent so that it's easier to understand um, what the diet studies showed us and, and some of that, that kind of thing that uh, we saw within in those comments. But yes, the comments were, as far as the opposition goes, it was very similar. And, and I think it for me, it just shows me that I have more work to do as far as I, you know information and education trying to get out there in front of people, talk to people, and and just kind of explain what we found with that feasibility assessment. Good deal. Well, speaking of uh, a consumptive ability with bringing something like that, we're at a point now where – you know, somebody like myself where deer season has come to a close, uh, now is when I typically think about trapping. Now, I know trapping's been going going pretty hard now for – 
better part of two months uh, as far as opportunity out there. But there's there's some other stuff that's coming up here. I can't remember some of the, the season open dates here, but I, I know we're right around the time frame when um, otters, beavers, things like that. I'm not sure about Fisher, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff that's right around us when it comes to trapping and i gotta ask the question so when i was uh when i was in school right and i was trying to figure out what i wanted to do you know i ended up going to school for biology but i I consulted with a lot of mentors and i'll never forget um one of the people that i consulted when i was in college uh, i i used to watch and i still do to this day uh dr grant woods growing deer tv and uh, when I was a kid in college, I emailed him one time asking a couple questions, and I'll never forget he called me, and one of the first things he said to me was, if you want to get into this for hunting, he said, then you should be something like a UPS truck driver. He said, because that's where your time's going to be available. So I bring that whole thing in to say, Tom, you're the fur bearer biologist, but how much time do you actually get to spend trapping and doing you know things fur bear related that are non uh non-state related yeah no that's that's some good advice and that's what we often tell like our game wardens if you love hunting go be a fish warden and we tell the fish wardens if you love you know fishing go be a, a game warden because that's your busiest time of the year and it it is fairly busy for me um few years i haven't been able to do much because of the martin project i've been traveling the state trying to give as many presentations as i could and and so that was kind of difficult. But usually I actually take three weeks off just to run trap lines. So usually I would start this past weekend and I would take this week off uh, and then the next two weeks because Bobcat Fisher just came in on Saturday. And so usually I'd run like a mountain line, like a Bobcat Fisher coyote line. And then at the same time, I'd, I'd usually run like a mink, uh, raccoon, muskrat line um, as well. And then just basically trap as hard as I can for three weeks. Um, and then, and then sometimes I leave some out and run those through the end of February, like coyote sets. Um, I would, I would kind of keep running and then run some cable restraints. So cables come in after Christmas and I do love running cable restraints. So, uh, some of those I'd run on our, our own farm. I, I have a lot of good wildlife habitat there that I put in. And, and so that's a great place to run cables. So. Yeah, it, this uh, this year and last year were kind of an anomaly. Usually, I'm trapping my heart out here over the next couple of weeks, but yeah, this year I won't. Probably won't get out much. I might go out uh, this coming Saturday, set up a mink and coyote line that's close to home, um, just for fun. But uh, but yeah, yeah, I try to man. And sometimes, like I'll take a week off um, during for otter. I'll try to go up northeast for otter and camp up there for a week. I uh, used to go up there for beaver that last week of March uh, every year and just try to slam as many beavers as I could. But, yeah, I, I do love trapping. It's one of my favorite things to do and usually what I save up most of my leave for. We just, uh, a few weeks ago, we had an episode with uh, another another listener, Taylor Fleischer, and he was talking a little yeah. bit about coy- uh, coyote and fox trapping. And, you know, one of the things he said in his opinion that coyotes are – in his mind in Pennsylvania, probably the top end of things to catch are as far as like the <clears throat> scale of difficulty that they're, they're right at the top. And, you know, he, he we, we kind of compared it to bow hunting where like, if you're, if you're going bow hunting, you know, that's probably the hardest thing to do in, in when it comes to deer hunting, right. Versus rifles and muzzle loaders and everything else. So, you know, that, that was kind of his interest and challenge, but um, you know, 
all the different species and all the different seasons and time of year, there's a lot of diversity around trapping. I'm kind of curious, where do you fall in the mix of things? Yeah, as far as difficulty, and, and Taylor's an awesome trapper, so I would agree with him. Uh, and that's why I enjoy going after coyotes because it is such a challenge. Um, I love mink trapping because I would, I, I think like blind setting for mink, not using bait or lure is, is also a, a really, um, you know, difficult challenge, but it's a lot of fun. And then otters, otters is one of the, between weasels and otters, the only two fur bears that I haven't been able to catch in Pennsylvania and otters can be tough, not only just because of, of, you know, where they're at, but really that time of the year when they're trapping them. So, but yeah, I, I agree with Taylor that coyotes are really, really difficult, but makes you a much better trapper, like just, just putting the effort into it. And then once you become a good canine or coyote trapper, I, I feel like you can kind of take that to a lot of the other species and, and do fairly well. Absolutely. Attention to detail. It does mm-hmm. wonders, right? Yeah. Um, but one of the things I'm, I'm most interested in talking about with you, just cause I am very, very green. And I think there's probably people listening to this that are, there's probably two, two different groups of listeners that are going to listen to this episode, right? You're going to have people who are extremely interested in otter, beaver, um, you know, Fisher, some of those, uh, well, I'm in my mind are, are kind of like a specialty, uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, they're, they're, they're a little bit different. It's not, you know, an entry level thing. It's not throughout the entire state. So to me, it's a little bit of a specialty. So you're going to have some listeners going to be like, man, I love this stuff. We never have a podcast on this. So I'm thankful to hear this. And then you're going to have guys like me who <clears throat> it's interesting, but no diddly squat about it. So I'm kind of curious when, when you, when you bring up things like that in your mind, like, I don't even know where to begin, Tom. Like, I don't even know where to begin. And not just necessarily I'm I'm getting uh, – I'm going to start trapping and doing this on my own. I'm just getting at – I don't even know where to begin in the whole process. I mean, I understand scouting and stuff, but it, it's uh, – to me, it's a little bit overwhelming. It's just uncharted waters for me. And I, I know that's probably because, unfortunately, uh, as much as I hate to say this out loud, trapping is one of those things that has been on the slow decline as far as the number of recruitment and people. So, I mean, just – I mean, enlighten us a little bit on on those things because it's it's foreign foreign waters to me. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right, and it can be an intimidating kind of sport or uh, recreational activity to get into because of that. Because you know, there's a lot of so it can be like a lot of equipment, a lot of different types of traps, um, and there's a lot of rules and regulations to it too, and that's you know, to try to keep people safe, try to keep pets safe and livestock, things like that. And so, you know, as you start to read through the regs and try to understand what can I use, what can I use, where can I set, where can I, what times of the year, it can be a little uh, challenging. Um, but the one thing I will say, and this was not around when I got into it, is we have so many resources online right now. And then I wouldn't say they're all fantastic, but the majority are pretty good. And so when I started to get into it, you know, you almost really needed to know a trapper and have someone willing to take you out, take you under their wing, kind of show you what it was like. And I was fortunate. I had a neighbor uh, who used to trap and I lived by a a spring stream and he showed me how to trap muskrats and how to set for raccoons and fox. Um, and, And that was awesome. I owe him, you know, everything for that. And so many folks don't really have that anymore. 
But the cool thing is, in my opinion, even though the price of fur is down, that has almost helped free up a lot of that information. When fur price was up, it was really highly guarded, very secretive. You know, you'd have to buy a book. You'd have to buy a VHS tape when I was, you know, younger. Uh, now, like a DVD or whatever. But but a lot of that is free for the taking on YouTube um, or any other, you know, social media platforms. Uh, there's a lot of great forums out there, trapping forums, where guys are giving advice, showing sets and photos and videos. Um, so, so what I always recommend for folks to do is, is try to learn as much as they can from online if they don't have someone, but also to try to look for someone that, you know, is willing to take them out just to run along the line with them, um, and show them, you know, this is what this trap is and this is what it's used for. Um, and really within an hour or two, if somebody's willing to sit down with you and go over that stuff, you can kind of get a better handle on it. And then, you know, I generally will talk about, okay, what species should you start with? And there's some species that really all trappers should kind of start with that are a little bit easier. They're a little bit more forgiving. And then you kind of, from what you learn there, you start to work your way up the chain, kind of like as we talked about with like coyotes and mink, some of the more difficult species to trap. You don't really want to throw in right with those first off because it could be very frustrating uh, very it's like throwing you to the wolves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you really, you know, you get disappointed. And then if you don't have success, you, you might, you know, hang the traps up for good and be done. Whereas if you can get some success right off the bat, um, you know, that usually helps people just like hunting or any other sports. You know, if you show someone a little bit of success and they get, get the hang of it and get some confidence built up. So, so yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. But thankfully, there's a lot of great resources out there. And and we have 16 different fur bear species, uh, 15 of those you can trap and, and, you know, we can start with the easier ones and work our way up to the harder ones. And, and, uh, this is honestly, this is a great state to be a trapper in. And even though fur prices are down, in my opinion, this is a great time to be a trapper because you're not competing with a ton of other people and, and people are willing to kind of show you the ropes and take you out and help you find success. Yeah, people uh, people like to talk negative in, in a lot of cases in life. Um, but, you know, on the, the topic of outdoorsmen, I mean, we are blessed in Pennsylvania. The opportunity we have and the quality we have is really, really, in my opinion, pretty high and i'm not saying it's not better for certain things elsewhere but we're, we're pretty blessed here but now you were talking about uh you were talking about knowledge and learning gaps and people and stuff so one thing i think is interesting when you talk about what's out there um i mean let's face it white-tailed deer are the things that uh that number one big game animal hunted in north america um everybody's an expert right so everybody's everybody's got information but there's there is there's a ton of free information and i think uh i think a lot of people go through like a uh fate like a, a progression from you know hunting their first deer to you know if they keep working up the ladder to mature deer and you know maybe it's different weapons and all of a sudden they get to a point where you you, you kind of cap out because you can't you can only go to a certain point and then you start to want to help learn people there's a lot of people mm-hmm. that have that genuine desire to to help teach people and stuff um when you think about that in other species of and and other areas of outdoors right you got fishing trapping and hunting um 
you know, you start weaseling down the things that are less popular. Um, I mean, there's still a ton of information out there for turkey hunting, right? There's a lot of turkey hunting pens in uh, in the country. Um, you, know, you get a little bit less down. You know, Waterfowling is pretty popular, but there's still information out there. Um, one thing I experienced, because um, I tried to be diverse in the show, I had I had a few bear hunting episodes. But, you know, I have learned bear hunters in Pennsylvania – if you are towards the top end as far as knowledge and experience and good bear hunting, there's a lot of tight-lipped individuals when it comes to bear hunting. And my experience, while I'm pretty pretty green when it comes to trapping, um, you know, I've, I've had uh, I've had conversations with fox and coyote trappers, and I think it's because those are numbers are pretty you know pretty high, uh, pretty high amounts. Um, you know, they're they're popular animals in general, but when you start talking about River otters and beavers. I felt my experience has been that's a group of people that when they're when they're towards the top of their game in trapping, those are two species. Again, I go back to I get some tight lipped individuals that don't share a whole lot of information. So I think right now you and I are about or you know have the ability to have a unique conversation because you have a ton of knowledge of this stuff from your your first of all your trapping interest and then your uh, your knowledge as a bi- as a biologist. But I just think that whole dynamic is extremely interesting. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and you're right. Like there's certain species like an otter, um, even like a fisher, um, where you know, you might have a shorter season and they have huge home ranges. So if you find sign, you know, you may not want to be giving that information away because you want to try to set up that area and, and try to capture that animal. But like I said, what's really, what's really awesome to me in this state is, you know, even, um, even though trappers are kind of spread out throughout the state, we have organizations like the Pennsylvania Trappers Association. And I mean, that is one of the best things you could do as a new trapper is just join that, go to the district meetings, go to the state rendezvous, you know, the National Trappers Association, they have a uh, nation, you know, national rendezvous. And, and when you go, you're, there's just demos all day long and there's people there to talk to and people selling equipment and supplies and all of them are giving out free information. Um, so there's so much to learn there and, and, you know, it, it, to me, it's just, it's a real blessing for new trappers to be able to come into the sport. But, but you're right. In, in every sport, you have folks that, you know, are fairly tight lipped and, and part of it's because they know what it took to get, you know, successful and, uh, and they might, you know, they might have that fairly guarded. So, you know, it's kind of to each his own. If you're looking to simplify your food plot system while enhancing the quality of your soil, you need to check out Vitalize Seed Company. Vitalize provides top quality seed blends designed to fit into their 1-2 planting system. The system has been designed to allow highly diverse plant species to grow synergistically, optimizing nutrient uptake and cycling the way God intended. Reduce your inputs, build your soil, and maximize the quality tonnage for the wildlife in your area. Find out more about this system and get your seed at vitalizedseed.com and be sure to check them out on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, the the learning stage gap is shortened nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of, and, and um, you know, shame on 
podcasts, right? Or shame mm. on videos or stuff because you can narrow that gap and people can get ahead further. But um, sure. it's it's that's also not a bad thing. So thinking about um, you know otters and beavers, you know otters are something I've had very little interaction with throughout the state, but I have hunted different places in Pennsylvania um, this year. Some of the places that I was hunting in New Jersey for bear um, had a lot of beaver interactions in in the the swamps and stuff that I was at. And, uh, you know, every time I've hunted swamps and I'm I'm walking edges and stuff, I see beaver sign all the time, right? You see, you know, places where they're, they're chewing. I see trails going in and out. I mean, I've had, uh, the first morning when I was walking into a stand, I was walking on the edge of this swamp and, uh, it was quiet, man. And I, I like, I, it was, it was pins and needles and I was in an area that had a high density of bear and, bear on something that scared me but i was just high anticipation right so I'm, I'm going into this spot in the dark and i heard all of a sudden this thrashing in the swamp and i was like holy cow that was and it was close it was like within 30 yards i'm like that was a bear then i listened and then i heard like a smack i was like oh that was a beaver but it, it just got me excited but uh, you know I, I look at all that sign and go yeah there's beaver sign here you could probably catch a beaver but mm-hmm. um <clears throat> You know, when I when I translate that back to my deer hunting, right? I'm even though I see a trail, and this goes like like trails lead to stuff, and you might have situations where you're you're higher odds, right? You know, because a, a deer trail could lead you to a feeding location, or maybe you find that there's a, a pinch point within the trails or a hub of trails that come together that leaves you for a better stand location. So taking that logic, how do you apply that to beavers and, and maybe otters? Maybe, maybe you're talking similar things over different species. Yeah. So they, so beavers and otters are relatively different because of when we talk about home ranges. And mm. so when you think of like a white tail, and so you're looking for a bedding area and you're looking for a feeding area and then, you know, potentially a few other things, but you're homing in on, okay, where are these deer at the majority of the time? And that's going to be the same with beaver. And so with beaver, you know, one of the first things that I'll do before I even go to that location is, you know, do some aerial imagery scouting. And, and the nice thing with beaver is you can find a beaver lodge from space. You know what I mean? You can zoom right down in on it. And you can find where those lodges are at. And you know that's where that beaver, that's the core. That's kind of the the hub of the wagon wheel of spokes where that beaver is going to be. And so the first thing I'll do then when I get on scene is try to get out to see the lodge. And so is the lodge, you know, we look at uh, a lodge to see is it fresh or is it an old one. And so an old, a, a fresh lodge will have a lot of new mud on the lodge. Um, you won't be able to see the sticks as easily because there'll be so much mud. Whereas an old lodge will look more like a skeleton of a lodge. So there won't be much mud on it. And so if I see that, then I'm going to keep moving because I know there's probably no beaver in there. Um, for guys that aren't in the swamps and are in more of the, the ridge and valley regions where we don't, and that's kind of where I grew up, we don't have big ponds and lakes where we have beaver lodges. You know, we're looking for bank dens. So where beaver, just like a muskrat, will dig a hole underwater up to the, you know, up under the bank. But what they do do is they actually put a lot of sticks and mud on top of the bank. And so they actually leave some sign there um, as well. So if you can find that hub, then you can start to look around and say, okay, where are some good trails to set up? So we have regulations in Pennsylvania where you can't set a trap 
within 15 feet of a lodge or a dam. And dams are another uh, place that I'm looking for because a beaver is going to continuously be working on those dams, servicing the dams, maintaining them, because that's really the lifeblood. It's backing that water up so that it has a safe haven and it allows it a uh, mode of transportation to kind of get to food, bring food back. Um, and so, so looking for lodges and dams, are they kept up? And if they are kept up, I know there's a beaver there. If it's a creek or a stream, I'm kind of looking for cuttings as well. So we call beaver bones where you see sticks that are, uh, all the bark is, is been nibbled off and it's just like a white or yellow color. That's also a good sign of, of fresh beaver sign in the area or cuttings where you see, you know, trees or small, um, you know, one to two inch saplings that are that are cut off. And if there's fresh chips on the ground, then, you know, that's a pretty good sign, too. So so that's what beaver immediately is is some of that initial sign to make sure is it fresh or is it old? If it's old, I'm going to keep moving. There might be a beaver there, but there's there's not going to be many. And so I'm looking for fresh sign where there's a colony there and where I think I can catch several beaver and, and make that effort worthwhile. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of going backwards a little bit in, in questions, but as, as you're talking about this, you did bring up home range. I'm going to circle back a second. Like, what are you talking about as far as home range sizes for, for some of these critters? Because I'm used to, uh, <clears throat> again, my, my deer, turkey, black bear mentality, and I'm not quite sure for bears what that's like. Yeah, yeah. It's, so beaver, it's actually pretty small. You know, we can see multiple beaver colonies on the same stretch of stream uh, within a couple hundred yards, and those beaver may not really need to travel very far because, you know, we talk about home range for any species, including humans, you know, what we need is we need food, we need cover, we need water, and uh, we need mates. And as long as we find all that within a certain area, we're good to go. So when you're talking about a muskrat, a beaver, very small home ranges, but when you start to talk about some of the mustelids like mink, otter, those home ranges get really big. Um, even a mink, you know, can have a home range. And, and, and mink and otter are fairly tied to water. Mm -hmm. So when we say square miles, it kind of seems weird because they're actually following these water courses up and then coming back down. Um, but, you know, mink can have a home range like three square miles and then a, 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 a otter can, can get closer to 10. And so otters, you know, have this wide range. And that's why with otters, you know, when you're trying to scout for otters, what you're looking for is, is fresh sign, but you're looking for also more of kind of what you mentioned with deer. Where do you have multiple streams coming together? You know, where, where do you have all these uh, crossings, uh, dam crossings? But also, like, where is the highest chance that that beaver's going to come, or otter's going to come through, or multiple otters are going to come through? And then otters are interesting because um, they use latrines, so they're using the same area uh, to go to the bathroom, and that also is scent marking. Uh, so you'll see multiple otters or groups of otters use that same latrine. And if you can find those locations, then that's an excellent spot to set a trap uh, because you have that chance of getting multiple otters coming through Now we only have a one week otter season in Pennsylvania and an otter, it may take more than a week before it actually comes back through the same area. 
And so even if you see fresh sign, if you just see a little bit of fresh sign, it may not be worth setting on unless you really believe that otter staying in that location. But they, they do range so far to look for food that you're better at looking for intersections um, of several creeks, rivers, uh, or if it's a very large lake or marsh where you know there's several otters uh, working around and you're looking for those latrine sites to try to target. But they do have large home range. You know, when you think about those species or even our land mammals, you know, bobcats, uh, fish or coyotes can have anywhere from 10 to 15 uh, square mile home ranges. So, so it, you know, it, it's something that you have to consider. And, and that's why, especially for like canine trapping or fish or bobcats, you're looking for major intersections to try to target. Um, and, and where you're hoping several home ranges may come together uh, to, to have that opportunity to capture one of those species. Yeah, I've, I've been, you know, as you're talking about this, I'm really comparing it to my journey right now and learning more and more about bear hunting. I mean, mm. I, I've I brought this up a couple times on the show this year just because I'm on this kick right now. I really enjoy bear hunting. I, I've been fortunate. I've, I've killed two rifle hunting in Pennsylvania, mm. but I still don't feel like I'm a bear hunter. Like everything was like mm. luck. And now I'm starting to take this journey of, and, and the things I'm learning quickly are, I don't, it, it, it doesn't really seem to matter how good the side hill with road, uh, rhododendron and laurel look or how good that swamp looks with the cattails and the briars and the tunnels and the cover there. Um, <clears throat> you know, for me, I, what I'm finding is it's only as good as what the, the most abundance in food is. Mm. And, and that's really where, where, uh, you know, I've, I've actually saw this year in cases where food was plentiful at a certain time thought, man, this is going to be really good. I've only got two to two and a half weeks left until the season opens. And then when season gets here, it's like, oh my gosh, where did everything go? And that, that food source had actually got consumed and they mm -hmm. moved down the road. And you're talking about, you know, Bear, when Emily was on, she told us that, you know, male might have a 22 uh, square uh, mile home range. And it's like, mm -hmm. wow, that can be a pretty good chunk of grain. So yeah. I, I'm coming back to trapping. You're talking about, um, you know, beavers are a little bit smaller, but otters have a, a pretty sizable home range and stuff. So, um, with that logic of, you know, not everything is created equal, there's something that's going to kind of sway the edge to it. I'm assuming it's got to be um, the same things we talk about with hunting, right? Food, uh, cover, and security, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. w w with that logic, like what are a couple of those components that come to your mind as I'm talking about that analogy with bear hunting? Yeah, yeah. Well, especially particularly with, with otter, um, you're, you're also considering what is the health of that stream. You know, if it's not a very healthy stream, it doesn't have clean water, it's not going to have good food. And so if an otter's there, it's going to move through fairly quickly. If it's a, a stream that's loaded with fish, um, and it's a, a super healthy stream, has some depth to it. So especially during otter season, you know, when we get a lot of ice and on a typical year in the north, um, you know, things will start to ice up your lakes and, and some of your, uh, slower rivers will start to ice up. But if it's large enough, has deep enough water, it's holding fish, you know, otters are going to be in there. They're going to be looking for food and they might just keep working up and down the same stretch. So a good, a good uh, example would be like the Delaware River, really large river. 
and oftentimes, you know, uh, otter trappers, if they're scouting, they'll see otters moving up and down there. Um, even, even up into like some of the, uh, major, uh, pieces coming into the Susquehanna and the West Branch, uh, the Allegheny, um, you'll start, you'll see otters that will spend most of their winter time in those larger rivers because that's where the food's at. It's still accessible. Um, and a lot of times they'll stay open just because they have enough flow. And so that's where, as far as an otter trapper, if you're looking to focus somewhere that those are good places to focus again, maybe where you have tribs that come in, uh, maybe where you have spring streams that come in and keep that water open. And that's really what you're struggling with as a, as an otter trapper or even a beaver trapper in winter is trying to keep your traps working despite the changing uh, conditions. So whether it's water that's coming up or down, whether it's water that's freezing or thawing, and that can be the, the real challenge to all of it. Um, with beaver, you know, beaver are fairly simple as far as if there's food there and if they, if the water depth is correct or if they can dam that creek up, um, and make the water depth what they want, what you'll see with beaver is, is they'll set up a lodge, set up dams, and then they'll set up a food cache. And you can look at that food cache. Is it a new food cache? Uh, is it still green? You know, there's probably an otter or a beaver nearby. And then as soon as they, you know, all the food is gone in that area, beaver pull up stakes and move on. And, and so that's kind of what, why it's worth taking a look to see. And you can see pretty quickly is, is all the food gone or most of the trees have been cut. There's very little food available and then they'll continue down. Then all that regrows and then a new colony will come in at some point. So, so yeah, you're exactly right, you know, and, and looking for those things needed as far as cover and food open water, um, the ability to continue to move up and down a stream or a river are all very important things mm. for those two species. What is, uh, here's a really, here's, you know, good example of how green of a person I am when it comes to beavers, but w- what is the dominating f- or food source that you're going to be looking for or, or some of the, you know, the, the big high things that come to your mind when you're thinking about beavers? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and I think probably a lot of people probably aren't familiar. But so what we see with beaver is more of the softwood. So things like willow, aspen, birch, um, which is often what you see growing down along streams, uh, in some cases older. And, and that's kind of more of their preferred food. Uh, but you will see beavers in areas where you may not have that. And so I've seen beaver chew down white pines and oak, um, and, a, and cherry and a variety of other species. I don't think they prefer it as much uh, because it's obviously much more difficult to, to bring down. And uh, they do seem to prefer those softer woods. Um, and that's what you'll see in these food caches. That's what most of the dams and the lodges are made of is the leftover um, sticks and logs after they've removed a lot of the bark and, and trimmed off the smaller limbs. Gotcha. So, thinking about uh beaver season and otter season um you know i know that um here's one example where i'm going to really um praise pennsylvania hunting seasons right and and uh the reason for that is pennsylvania's turkey spring gobbler season we don't start hunting spring gobbler until 
uh, generally like the last weekend in April or the first weekend in May. And the, the sole reason to my understanding for that is because the biology of, of turkeys breeding, um, it makes sense to hunt them late because the, the, the bulk of the breeding has been done. We're not have, we don't have a major impact on uh, the breeding uh, cycle. You know, hens are already nesting, and then we can go and still have that fun of finding a tom that wants to play the game, right? So from a biological standpoint, it makes sense when we have our hunting season. Same thing with deer hunting. When you think about rifle hunting, the majority of deer hunters are gun hunters. Uh, it's your highest odds as far as a hunter to use a rifle, and we don't hunt until after Thanksgiving. And you, you talk about peak breeding for whitetails. Like that's, I, I believe, is somewhere around the 14th or 15th of November. So we get through that phase and uh, it's advantageous and it's good for the, the deer herd itself as far as the timing. So wait, with that kind of logic, how does the season for beaver and otter get determined and what things influence that? Yeah, so so most of our fur bears, um, most of the fur bear seasons are set based on fur primeness, and so we know that this is you know this is a group of species why they're called fur bears historically have been harvested for their pelt, um, and so you don't want to harvest those species when that fur is not prime because there's not a lot of value to it. And so that is how most of the seasons were originally set. And then when we try to fine tune those, it's very similar to what you mentioned. We're trying to harvest these animals uh, when they're not with young so that we're not uh, impacting that next generation or um, leaving young without a parent. And, and so that also comes into play. So we look at the breeding season, we look at... Um, you know, when young are born, but we're also looking at fur primeness as well. And so, so those all do come into play with fur bears as well. And, um, and that's kind of where you, you look at when our fur trapping seasons generally starts mid October, you're starting to see fur primeness step up. Now you will see a lot of fur buyers will say, Hey, I don't want anything until mid November. And that's really when you see prime, uh, fur hit for most species and then what you'll see is that primeness will extend uh, throughout the winter and then as you get into late winter some species like the the canids you know they're they start to rub and their fur starts to the primeness starts to come down and then uh, species like the beaver and otter they hold their primeness a little bit longer and so you'll see uh, with beaver season it goes through the end of march and you you still have prime beaver at that Point, but soon after that point, uh, you'll see that that pelt uh, primeness start to go down, and so so that's that's kind of why we set the seasons the way we do for e for each species has a lot to do with the, the fur primeness, but it also does have to do some with the biology as well, and again making sure that we're not orphaning uh, young and and uh, having major impacts on that next generation. Gotcha. So I'm kind of curious. I want to talk a little bit about some of the, the tools of the trade. Mm -hmm. I'm really used to when it comes to um, land trapping, you know, I've, I've run anything from, uh, you know, one Duke one and a halves up to threes, 
land trapping, uh, a couple different forms of, of stakes and boiling traps and taking care of them and lures and sets like that and how I want to approach those those traps. And, man, I, I've, uh, I, I got started, you know, being taught how to trap raccoons and man one of the one of the coolest things i learned was you could take any any stinking foothold trap i wanted and i could put some aluminum foil around the pan Mm -hmm. sticking in water and boom they they i could catch a raccoon stuff like that Mm -hmm. so uh yeah what what are what are you typically using in a lot of cases i mean um i'm not real familiar with kind bears i'm not real familiar with drowner sets i'm not familiar with stuff like that so um i'm sure there's an array but you know enlighten us a little bit on that yeah, and so, like you mentioned, there is a lot of different traps out there, and that's a good thing, because what we've seen over time is trap, trap what we call trap technology has increased. And so, you know, at one time, we only had a few different types of traps or sizes of traps. Oftentimes, they were used for a multitude of species, and that wasn't always a good thing. We, we saw trap injuries. Some of these weren't the most ethical way to capture animals. Uh, considering, you know, humaneness. And that's something that folks should know is, is that there's been a lot of, uh, best management practices out there that were testing traps, uh, in the field on different species to really understand what are the best traps that we should be using for each species and then making recommendations on, on which traps are best. And you see some of that in a regular, uh, within our regulations or, you know, you can't use over a certain size trap. Um, with, with footholds and then with conibears, it's the same thing. If it's over a certain size, it has to be, uh, in a cubby box in some cases, or it has to be submerged or in, in water course. And so that's really important too. But yeah, it's really dependent on the animal itself. And so when we talk about something like a muskrat, you know, whether it's a foothold, you know, the appropriate size, we're looking at number one, uh, long springs or coil spring traps. Um, or we're looking at, we'll say what the size of the 110, which is a four inch square, uh, conibear. And then as we step up in species, then that's where we progressively step up with raccoons. It could be a one and a half foothold or 160, uh, to a 220, uh, conibear. And then when we get up into some of the larger species like, um, otter, uh, we're talking about, you know, possibly a number two to a number three, or you're starting to see a lot of traps um, kind of going by the inches of the jaw spread in their in the, their model number. And so you see things like the MB uh, 450 or 550 or 650. Pennsylvania, we don't allow traps over six and a half inches uh, jaw spread. So that's the largest we can use in Pennsylvania. Uh, but there's certain species that we do want to use those traps for. So things like the beaver uh, or the coyote, we use a lot larger trap, but what's important is we can also fine tune those traps. And so we can put things like shock springs to avoid injury of that animal uh, in a foothold trap. We can um, use uh, things like offset jaws or laminated jaws uh, to also you know, provide more uh, holding power as well as reduce injury. Um, so there, there's just a huge variety of different sizes different uh, techniques that we can modify traps or they come modified. Um, and that's really important to understand. And then for, for things like beaver, we're using large footholds because they have these really large back feet. And then we also use large conibears. The largest is the 330. 
in Pennsylvania, which is can be a very intimidating conibear trap to set uh, and use. But we c there's a lot of safety mechanisms we can use for that. They all have safeties on there for their springs. And then we have safety devices that we use to hold the jaws uh, from going shut until we're, you know, we have the trap in place. And the last thing you do is take that safety off before you leave. And so we always encourage trappers to take advantage of all the, the safety tools that are out there and to really dig into those best management practices are all on our website. Um, and you can just pick by species and see, okay, what traps are, are really the most efficient, most effective to use for each species. And that is really important because that's going to give you your best chance of success. Yeah, talking about the the modifications and the the things that have come in trap advancement to make it um, more humane. That is one mm -hmm. of those things that is so so important. Yet, <clears throat> even in this day and age, it's amazing how much of that gets forgotten or or is not well communicated to the the public. I was just at uh, I went into work the other day and we had a we had a, a staff meeting and somebody was telling me that they were out. This time you were busy pulling soil samples in ag fields, and somebody hmm. was telling me they saw uh, uh, a raccoon that was caught in a trap, and they're uh, very, very um, green to trapping, and didn't really say a negative thing. It was like, oh, no, it was caught. It couldn't get out, and it, it was kind of like a negative vibe to it, and it's like, um, sure. you know. I had to refrain from not saying something like, um, that's a shame. It's a shame there wasn't two of them kind of deal. <laughs> but, uh, no, like right. I, I say all that because, um, every year people might see, see a trapped animal or something. Don't realize that. Yeah. They're caught. Yeah. We're, it's going to be dispatched. Um, it, it, to me, that just, I don't want to put this. It just really, really emphasizes the the quality and importance of what's going on in in trapping. Um, integrity, I think, is the word I'm, mm -hmm. I'm looking for in mm -hmm. uh, in the trapping community. So, just yeah, I'd love to say, love to bring that up. One thing I wanted to talk about: shifting gears here. So, I'll never forget when I was younger <clears throat> and talking about predators my grandfather was not a trapper and we were talking about trying to trap coyotes and fox and uh his logic you know he said to me he said you know what's the sport and walking up to some animal you caught and this and that he goes i'd rather hunt it and shoot it and when i was green i thought oh yeah that kind of makes sense but then i started mm -hmm. learning started learning that the trying to trying to beat an animal's nose and you know making the the ground appear and feel the same where your trap bed is and getting it to step on a small square there's a lot of sport to that and there's a sense of accomplishment in doing that and doing it effectively requires some attention to detail and not missing the mark. So yeah. I'm going to take that same logic, right? And I'm going to apply this to trapping in the water, whether that's for beavers or otters. And my mindset is, well, okay, there's a runway. I'm just going to stick a, a steel conibear here in this runway and I'm going to catch something, but it's, there's a little bit more to it than that. So what, what's the attention to detail side of things? What's the, what's the trap setting things that make you go from, uh, a schmuck like me to saying, Hey, I got some potential here to catch something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're right. Like it's, it seems hard to compare it to say land trapping or specifically canine trapping and canine trapping. When you watch a good canine trapper, uh, a good one makes it look like, you know, it's all automatic and they can do it in minutes and, 
you know, there's no attention to detail, but in reality, everything is practiced and everything is attention to detail. It's just through their movements, they've become so quickly at it. Um, with water trapping, it can be very similar. And the real, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but the real challenge of water trapping is you are, you're constantly trying to keep that trap working in a medium that could be potentially changing all the time. And so when you think about setting a trap in the water, that water depth is super important. How do you adjust for, you know, you can set a trap that needs to be two inches underwater the day you're there, but then all of a sudden you get rain or it starts to freeze. How do you adjust for that? So that's really where you're starting to understand, okay, there's certain sets or there's certain places. Here's a spring that comes out. I know this water temperature is going to be the same every time. Uh, this is also going to be a good place to put some scent because it's not going to freeze in. The bait's not going to freeze in. And there you've got a set that's going to keep working regardless of how cold it gets. Um, as far as your water depth, you know, that can be a difficult one, but they, you know, you, what you'll see with water trappers is they'll make a specific stand for a trap and that, and then they can adjust it on that stand up and down as that water level every day. They move it up or down, um, or you're using rocks underneath or whatever it might be to try to adjust. Uh, but it is very specific. It's the same thing that you're trying to do, uh, for canines. So when you think of a dirt hole set, and then depending on what you're trying to catch, if it's a fox, you know, maybe it's six inches back and slightly offset an inch. If it's a coyote, it's nine inches back and it's maybe three inches offset. When you're looking at when a beaver comes up or an otter comes up to a, a slide or a, or a crawl out where it's going to get out on the bank or it's going to slide into the bank, you're thinking about, okay, when that beaver comes in, as soon as its chest touches, it's going to set its back legs down. So if you want a back foot catch, you need to be about from the tip of your middle finger back to your elbow. And then you need to take your elbow and go straight down. And whether it's two inches deep or whether it's a foot and a half deep, that's where that trap needs to be. And you need to carve out a shelf, have it offset about three to four inches and set your trap and you'll catch a beaver every time. But it's that attention to detail as to where that trap needs to be and understanding how that fur bearer is built, what it's doing when it comes into a set. And with a beaver, it could be carrying mud. So you may not want a front foot catch because it's just going to set the trap off. You really may want that back foot catch. Um, and then, of course, when you're talking about sets where you're trying to get that beaver underwater and killed as quickly as possible, and you're looking at water depth. And so you might not be able to set, like a land trapper can set a trap anywhere he wants or she wants. But with a water trapper, you are very restricted to where you can put a set in. And so you've got to, you've got to really be thinking about where can I really get a good set in? Do I have to modify this bank in order to put my set in? Um, which you may not want to do because, uh, you know, some of these species are very clever and they understand when there's a change and they might be hesitant to come in. And so, so that's kind of an example, at least with the beaver. Um, as to what you're thinking about, the attention to detail is certainly there. And it's, again, knowing the biology and, and really knowing kind of the physiology of that species as well um, and understanding, you know, how to set a trap. And the, the, the one thing with those two species in particular, they are probably two of the most powerful fur bearers that we have. The coyote is extremely powerful. But the beaver and the otter are very powerful, very strong, 
And, you know, when you're trapping either of those species, particularly an otter, if it's a dry land set, you know, you need to think about how you're going to hold that otter there until you get there. Or if it's a water set where you're trying to get that animal underwater, hoping it expires as quickly as possible, you've got to think about how can you hold it and get it down to depths where, you know, it will expire quickly. And so, so those are, again, other things that you need to think about that you're not necessarily thinking about when you're canine trapping or cat trapping or fisher trapping. Yeah, and you talk about uh, talk about catching and, and holding as best you can. You know, I'll never forget when I was. Th- this was one of those moments where I was. I realized I paid attention in school, <laughs> and the reason I say that is because I was. I went trapping early on with uh, w- with some some friends and family, uh, and they were good trappers but the one trapper was really really trying to get a he said he really wanted to get that front foot catch a front foot Mm -hmm. catch Mm -hmm. and i said uh well that doesn't make any sense to me why you would want to get a front foot catch and this is for land critters but and, and my reasoning for that was because you know, think about where the most muscle mass is mm. and, and everything else. So like your, your, your legs, right? You've got more muscle mass in your legs than you do your arms, right? And if like, if you were caught by your hand, um, it would be a whole lot easier to use both of your feet to pull like crazy and pull out of a trap versus mm-hmm. if your foot was caught and you had one foot in both of your arms. The other thing too, uh, that I think is important is like, you've got bone on bone connection in, in your hips and your lower bones, which is a little bit more of a sturdy versus you know cartilage holding your your front legs together and stuff so mm-hmm. you, you've got a, a, a lot going against you in in those front foot catches and that's kind of the things i learned and then somebody who was a, a better trapper than me kind of was like oh yeah mitchell the way you describe that makes sense is, is is there some similarity to that when you're talking about catching beaver beaver and otter and things like that well so that's that's an important thing to consider uh but really the most important thing is do you have the depth you know, if you're looking to use a, a set where you're getting them under the water and you want them to expire as quickly as possible, if it's deep enough, it doesn't matter which, which, if it's front or back. Now, a back foot, you know, beaver's back foot's as big as my hand, a, a good sized beaver in Pennsylvania. And if you make a good back foot catch, you likely would be able to hold that big beaver a little bit easier. But you have to think, when that beaver goes down to the bottom of that cable towards the weight that's down at the bottom that's trying to hold it, it also has, depending on the size of the beaver, three to four feet to get its nose up to the top of the water. So if you've got five to six feet, um, then it doesn't matter if it's a front or a back. But if it's if you don't have that depth, then you need to go for a front foot catch because you want the nose end of that beaver down towards the bottom uh, so that it can't get up to get air. And so that's the, and there's also an important of using enough weight. You know, some of our beaver in Pennsylvania can get up, you know, 60, there's been 70 pound beaver caught in Pennsylvania before, and that is a big beaver. So you've got to match that weight, uh, at the end of your cable. Um, and with otter, otter, one thing to consider with otter is otter love to spin, almost like a crocodile or an alligator where they just love to roll. And if you don't have enough, um, if you don't have enough, um, oh, I'm losing the word now. Um, uh, forgive me, Mitchell, but no, you're good. You're talking about something like lead or, or no, equipment if, based. It, it, yeah, it's in your chain. 
swivels, I'm sorry, if you don't have enough swivels or swivel points in your chain between, um, be between the cable and the trap itself, then that might roll up with the cable, might pull the weight up again. It, it's, it's very strategic on how you're setting and then how you're trying to capture that animal, making sure you're using the right equipment to get it down there to expire as quickly as possible. So water depth is very important for, for those uh, animals. You know, otter front feet, back feet are about the same size. Beaver front feet and back feet are very different sizes. So, you know, th th those are to be considered um, when you're trapping those species. But yeah, generally, if you can get a front foot catch on either of those, you're better off. But again, as I mentioned with beaver, sometimes if you're using, say, like a caster mound set, where you're using scent, it's not a blind set where you don't have any bait or lure. If you're using scent, that beaver, what they do is they swim down to the bottom, they grab a big handful of mud, they swim up, and they put mud over top of that caster mound, which is a scent post or a scent mound from another beaver, and then they put their own scent on it and leave. Well, if, if that beaver is already carrying mud up there, it, chances are it's just going to snap your trap. Um, so for a caster mound set, you want more of a back foot catch. Uh, whereas if it was a food, food lure set or a blind set, you could use a front foot catch and that, be just fine. That makes a lot of sense. So th this whole time when we're going into uh, what I'm just going to be very general about and just say water trapping, but we're mm -hmm. really talking about otters and beavers. In my mind, I thought there was more similarities to these two than there really are when it comes to that. And I, I kind of lumped it together, and it's it's kind of their own thing. And I, I asked a lot of questions that were novice because I'm not very um, – I'm not very well versed in this and I wanted to educate myself and I'm sure there was people that did too. So for, for, you know, the, the next little bit of the podcast, you know, we, we've been on for almost an hour and be mindful of your time, but you know, kind of a wrap up thing is I, I kind of want you to take the floor for the last little bit and share with us something that you find valuable wherever you go that I wouldn't think of as a novice in, in interviewing this and, you know, whether this be educational, cause I, I know you're very in, into, you're, you're very good at educational and you know, that's what you do for a living or experience. Uh, be love to hear experiences of stuff like this that, that relate to this. Yeah. 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 I think I'll do a little both. I think, uh, one thing that probably the most important message I could leave with listeners tonight is really the importance of trapping. Um, I think a lot of folks, when, if somebody comes up to you and says, why is trapping important? You know, the first things that we commonly go to is like, well, we can make money off of the, you know, the value. And, uh, sometimes we can get meat out of it. And sometimes it makes other byproducts. But in reality, there's some really core messages about trapping and why it's important. And one is just overall fur bear management, in Pennsylvania. So, you know, I'm supposed to be managing 16 fur bear species in the state. And I cannot do that on my own. And I rely on trappers. And thankfully, you know, we have close to 50,000 fur takers in Pennsylvania. And those folks are the folks that I get my information from to help manage these species. And if I need disease samples, first by call are trappers in the Pennsylvania Trappers Association. And they will get me as many carcasses as I need. We send them surveys every year that help us understand how the populations are doing for these species. Um, so the other thoughts are, you know, with trapping, you know, we mentioned 
trapping for harvest, but we actually do a lot of trapping um, and a lot of species are released. And that's really the beauty of using the right equipment is if we don't want to take that raccoon or we don't want to take that fox, we can release it. And as a biologist, when we're doing research, we're working with trappers to catch things, put collars on, put tags on and release them. We talk about reintroduction efforts. You know, we, we work for fisher, for otter, for beaver. Uh, we are using trappers to capture these animals and move them to start new populations. So this idea that trapping is only just harvesting and taking away. And then we use trapping to kind of mitigate some serious issues. So beavers flooding a road, um, if an animal's predating on livestock, you know, we're using trapping to, to kind of help mitigate some of these issues. And then rabies, health, human health and safety, vaccinating raccoons and skunks. Um, it's trapping that we're using. So, so if, if you do get that question, it's important to understand that like there's so many reasons and important reasons why trapping is really valuable. Um, but you know, to me, as far as on a personal level, and I've heard this from other folks, trapping has made me a better outdoorsman. And, and it is because when you are trapping, you are paying attention to everything. You are looking for broken blades of grass. You're looking for just the slightest indent in the mud for tracks. Uh, you're looking for scat and you learn, you learn how these animals move, uh, by what you see, but you're also trying to learn as much as you can from books and from videos and from talking to people because the more you know about that animal, the better the chances that you have to capture it. And it just makes you a, a much more well-rounded outdoors person because you're just paying attention to so much more. And I've always heard that, and I certainly wouldn't claim it for myself, but I've always heard that, you know, trappers are some of the, of the best outdoorsmen as far as, you know, paying attention to what's going on around them because you're not just watching animals. In reality, you rarely see the animal that you're pursuing. You're just looking for the sign that they left or you're trying to anticipate where they're going to be based on what you know. And, and so to me personally, um, I just, you know, trapping, one thing I should say is trapping is not for everybody. And I think everybody should understand that we're, we're not trying to make everyone a trapper. We're just trying to get people to appreciate it and understand why it's important. But at least for me personally, I've had some of my best outdoor memories on the trap line. And, um, and I, I'll tell you probably the, the best one that I've ever had, uh, was trapping bobcats. The first year I trapped bobcats, I was trapping with a friend and, um, you know, we would have started this past weekend. We trapped all week and then Christmas came and then, you know, I had a six year old at the time. And so that means I've got to be back by about 530 in the morning. And so we left at one in the morning. We had about an hour and a half drive. We ran the line and I was, you know, we pulled into this field. It was like two thirty, three in the morning and you could see eyes and there was my first bobcat. And so I dispatched it super excited, but I kind of felt a little bad because my buddy hadn't caught one yet. And then we go to the next trap and he had his first bobcat. And so we both caught our first bobcats Christmas morning at three in the morning and, and, you know, got some great pictures and then rushed home. I crawled into bed and then about 15 minutes later, my daughter comes rolling in and wakes me up and <laughs> we start Christmas, which I had started about five hours ago. So. But for me, that was the best Christmas present I could have ever asked for was getting to catch my first bobcat with one of my best friends.
um, and, and have his as well. And so that's kind of the memories, you know, and, and, and also as I get older, like you mentioned, it's like introducing people to trapping. You know, I taught that guy how to trap and he caught his first cat. And then I was with him when he caught his first beaver. And, and I've been able to show people how to trap. And I just had a guy this week, you know, he came out with me for a day. I showed him how to set some traps and then he sent me a picture of his first raccoon this week. And I was, I was more excited, you know, I'm sure than he was probably. So it, it's that kind of stuff that, uh, is so important. And the thing that people don't really see or understand unless they've tried it before. It is. I, I'll never forget the first bobcat. Um, mm. I'll say we caught, you know, I was, I was learning and it was, you know, we, um, I, I was doing the trap line with family, right? And mm-hmm. we, we, it was kind of our trap line, so to speak. And uh, I'll never forget, I was the one checking traps that day. And it was actually a set that I started to make. And mm. uh, I, I needed I needed help with it because I was really green and setting up and, and bedding the trap it was mountain ground it was tough and but uh, you know it was neat that i said then why don't we try this this log and doing this here and then when i walked up and there was a i think it was like a man i want to say it was like a 28 to 30 pound tom mm. something like that wow. it was a really nice cat and, and like hearing the noises and seeing mm-hmm. the size like yeah, that i couldn't believe how excited i got but so yeah it's stuff like that you know truly awesome but uh you can relate that in any outdoors experience and hey that's mm-hmm. why uh that's why we have this podcast that's why we talk about this stuff that's why we have experienced people like you on it so man i really appreciate um you taking some time and uh just talking about something that's not really i don't know how many i'd be curious if i would do a search how many podcasts have been done on beaver and otter trapping i have no hmm. idea the answer to that yeah 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 yeah, I know there's a couple of trapping-specific podcasts from the Midwest, but I have not heard anything here in Pennsylvania-specific. And because of some of our regulations, the timing of the seasons, like, we do think, you know, you, you've got to do things differently, especially fisher trapping. Um, you know, we have different rigs here that kind of force you to to um, to do things a little different. But, uh, but you know, Trevor's or, or trappers are some of the most clever uh, outdoorsmen and women that I know because they make it work no matter what and um, and so it's it's always interesting to get to talk to folks and how they're doing it and and the new the new sets that they come up with and it, yeah the innovation is incredible yeah absolutely and I like to learn from people like that because I'm not a creative mind <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. Well, hey, I appreciate you uh, taking some time. Um, I hope you have, uh, you know, as we're recording this, it'll be after Christmas, but, you know, this is before. So Merry Christmas to you and uh, Happy New Year. Thanks, man. Merry Christmas to you and your family, too. And thanks for having me on.